I'd like to welcome all of you. I'm Gary Knoll. Today, we're going to be having a conversation with Remarkable Mind. Our global forest, the biological mysteries, threats, and future of trees and forest. My guest is Diana Birchford Kroger. She's an Irish-Canadian researcher, scientist, natural mystic, who perhaps knows more about trees and forests than anyone else in North America. She's an expert botanist and medical biochemist who's written extensively on the molecular biology of trees, their medicinal properties, the social interreactions between trees and other life forms in our forest, sustainable forestry, and the traditional wisdom trees hold for healing. Her scientific work has appeared in the American Heart Journal and the Journal of Microscopy. In past, she has held science posts at the Canadian Department of Agriculture and the University of Ottawa School of Medicine. And Diana's own research gardens outside Ottawa, open to the public, include rare plants in Turkey, Iran, China, and 100 rare types of trees from the north, northern forests and other countries. Many of them are endangered. And her recent book is Global Forest. And it's about 40 short essays that our frequent guest, Bill McKibben, who you've heard many times in this program, says reflects someone who understands a subject so deeply that information is transmuted to wisdom. Nice to have you with us today, Diana. Hello, hello. Hello, Gary. I'm going to give you a very broad uh, canvas to, to paint with today, all right? Uh, I would like for you to be as broad-based as possible with examples of some of the biological wonders and miracles of trees and then the medicinal properties and traditional knowledge about these that have been forgotten and then the yes. destruction of our forest and the threats to human and other life due to their demise and the ways to introduce trees back into our lives. And I say that with uh, an enormous reverence for trees I planted more than 4,000 trees on my own farm in Florida. Oh, really? Yeah, 4,000 and over 50,000 flowering shrubs. Oh, good for you. And uh, so I'm a big believer uh, in in reforestation the right way. But when I hear politicians say, oh, we can, in fact, it was under um, Clinton and Gore. And I I was disappointed that they acted like they were pro-environmentalist, and and maybe in their minds they were. But Mm -hmm. the reality was that their actions of clear-cutting the old forest uh, and then saying, oh, but we're planting trees to replace them, Uh, they didn't say how long it would take for those trees to grow, and some of the trees they were cutting were hundreds of years old. but, uh, But as long as they just gave a press release and said, you know, Oh, for every tree we've cut, we've replaced it with two, then people think, well, that's a good thing. And I'm yeah. thinking, no, it isn't, because you don't understand the forest. Yeah. So take yeah. us on a journey yeah. that we don't know. I'm not going to interrupt you. We have no commercial breaks, so the forum is yours. Can I address for Mr. Gore and for Mr. Clinton, if I may? I am a visitor outside of the country, and it's somewhat rude of me to to make a comment about this. Um, I don't mean it as a rudeness, but the, the planet is ours. The planet is for everybody. And reducing and taking down the global forest is an absolute catastrophe for the world. And I would say to Mr. Gore and Mr. Clinton, you are very good lawyers, no doubt. But as biologists, I think you could come to my garden and pay a visit and maybe learn something from me. And I think this is very necessary for the health and the safety of the world that is to come. 
um, I would like to address the effect of the ancient forests. And America has, stand, has stood in the global plane of being an extraordinary continent. The face of the continent really looks to the sun in America. There, is, there are extraordinary species here that are really matched nowhere else in the world. And I will talk about the wonderful array of biodiversity of, of the, the, the oaks that you have here. They are bar none in the world. And the hickories, again, they are bar none. These species and the black walnuts will do something for the future that you all need to know and that you all need to be ambassadors for me to pass this knowledge around. 400 million years ago plus and running. The atmosphere was toxic. That means the atmosphere was filled with carbon dioxide and man and his babies could not live. We could not live there. And the tree stepped into the stage of life. And what they did is they did one extraordinary thing. They made a marriage happen between carbon and oxygen. And that marriage was took place in the form of in in the place of uh, took place in the shade of sunlight, and sunlight made these chemicals manufacture sugars and evolve oxygen, and its oxygen is what we all need. It is oxygen is what we draw into our lungs. It is oxygen is what is what is what. All the four-legged species, including us, our two-legged species require. I would ask my audience to right now stop breathing. Just stop breathing. See how, fa how fast you will support yourself without breathing. Now, the oxygen that you are breathing comes from trees. 50% about comes from trees and the global invisible forests of the ocean and they're both connected and they both hold hands with one another a tree does something quite extraordinary and even even as we're speaking they're doing it and it was something that einstein never really understood he understood that light comes in a straight line and it also comes in a wave but the trees take both the wave form of light and takes the the straight line form of light and does something really kind of from a quantum physics point of view quite miraculous with this light and it makes it dance in an extraordinary molecular dance and the dance produces energy and that energy is a thermodynamic reaction and the thermodynamic reaction produces food that is all the food we eat that is all the food the animals eat and the oxygen so this is what trees do, and this is what trees have been doing for 400 million years. But the American trees on the American continent do it better than anybody, anywhere, any tree, because what they do is they plug in carbon dioxide into their bodies, and they get huge and massive and big, and they open their faces to the sun. And these are the trees that have to be left down standing. And these are the trees that will give us life, will give every baby in utero life, and will breathe life back into the planet. And I say we have got to protect our forests. We have got to plant forests. And Mr. Null, I would say to you, good on you for having planted so many trees, because we're all going to have to do this. Thank you.
uh, I want to go a little further with this because my audience needs to learn today about more about the trees, the energy of trees, uh, why sacred society or people have considered trees sacred throughout history and uh, as living entities. And uh, we don't. We just look at them as a floor or a desk or a uh, a newspaper, something that will come from it. So why don't you take us through the, oh, okay. the, the um, sailor energy of a tree? Yes. Okay. Well, actually, in North America, and in fact, I brought many, many people to the Arnold Arboretum yesterday to show them, amongst many more, um, one specific tree that I am particularly very interested in, and indeed it is the sacred tree of the First Nations. It is the sacred tree of America. It is the sacred tree that lived from Florida up into Canada. And the name of this tree is called Petalia trifoliata, and it's, its common name is wafer ash. And there are really only, I, I hate to tell you this, four or five or six left. I have one in the garden. They are almost all gone. And this was a considered to be a sacred tree by all of the peoples of, of Eastern North America for about 6,000 years. And the 6,000 years aspect of it gave them an extraordinary medicine. And that medicine is called marmosan, and it is a, a biochemical synergist, and it is capable of looking at cancers straight in the face and saying, you will not survive. It is something that is being worked on right now. It is an absolute boon of thinking towards all of the oncologists and the people who are really suffering everywhere all over the world from a massive exposure to pesticides. And from that, consequently, the, the problems with cancers are enormous. But this chemical from Petalia trifoliata, which grows in America and has grown to a great extent in America, now there are only a few left, will give us one answer. That's number one. Now, let us look at something that has a global impact. In the world, the ancient world of China, Japan, Russia, going down into Europe because the Monogyra is there, and indeed in America, we have 1,000 species of hawthorns here. And these are called Critega species. Now, these have been considered to be magical species all over the world and for all cultures in all times, simultaneous thinking of magic. And indeed, there is magic in these trees. Now, the magic has been transmuted now into a chemical, and the chemical is called critagon. And critagon, you now, all of my audience right now, you have got to take your noses, and you have got to find a hawthorn. And they are in the arboretum, in the Arnold Arboretum right now. They're Right now they're flowering. Take your noses, take your schnozes, and stick them into these flowers. And when you put them, your nose into the flower, you will smell. The, it's kind of a bitter smell, actually, in the flower. But what happens, it's like smelling a pie, a, a gorgeous apple pie that's just come out of the oven. Your salivary glands start to work. And as they start to work, the lactone comes out of the flower, goes into your salivary gland, and you actually drink the lactone of Crataegus. And here's the magic. Here is the big answer. It opens the left ascending coronary artery. And I'll guarantee you, you will not have a heart attack while you are smelling that plant, and it will give you protection. 
And if you have had surgery, this kind of left ascending coronary artery surgery, you will have been given this compound. But this one is for free. So you just trot along to the crotagus and you smell it and it is for free. And it produces an apple. It is a little tiny palm. It's called a hawthorn, a little haw in the fall. And all of the farmers all over eastern North America, when they would go and get their dairy herds in the past, they would pick this as a trail food. They'd pick them after the last, you know, the last killing frost. And it goes nice and red. And they pick them and they would eat them. And this is a trail food. And that gives them crotagin into their blood system. And that's why lots and lots of farmers have been so absolutely awfully healthy. But the Aboriginal people went one step further. They took all of the little, each one has got five, um, their tiny little nutlets inside in it. It's technically actually an apple, a tiny apple. It's a palm, botanically speaking. And they would grind up these little tiny, wash them, of course, and grind them. And they had their first cup of coffee because caffeine exists in, this, in, this, in these little nuts. And it gave them a little stimulant. So we're all drinking coffee probably today, and we've been doing it for a very long time. So that's another example of, of magic out of the forest. And, um, yeah, I, I want to kind of say some, something about the concept of magic in North America, the concept of the dreamland. The dream in North America was common to the Aboriginal people and common to the medicine men and women. And it is on, on the edges of REM sleep that the dream comes into the mind. But you know, uh, Gary, the dream has been there for mathematics, for E equals MC squared. It's been there for medicine. It's been there for all the artists. It's been there for all the composers. And it's something we know very little about. Mm -hmm. Take us in this area. We can, well, not we, many people... <coughs> Not yeah. everyone in yeah. would consider trees an intelligent life form, having their own immune systems, the way trees yeah. and plants engage in sexuality. Yeah. W would you also share your observations about the social life of trees and the forest, how the forest as a natural habitat is actually a community, a living, yes. viable Gaia community? Well, my knowledge for this kind of goes back a long way. Um, and you kind of have to sit back and listen to this one because it is quite an extraordinary story. When I was a child of 11, I am uh, an aristocratic mongrel. My, my father was, was from a titled family, and my mother comes from a very, very ancient Gaelic family, and they were the kings of Munster, one of the five counties of Ireland. They were the kings of Munster in the 5th century. And my mother was killed, my father and my brother, and I was made an orphan when I was 11. Now, in the south of Ireland, an orphan is everybody's child. An orphan is the child of the whole community. And the community of people who picked me up because they thought I was such a valuable child from, I suppose, um, a historical point of view, and I was the last child left, um, they, they taught me for three long years in and under the Brehan laws, and they would be equivalent to your Magna Carta and the Napoleonic Code. They taught me all of the ancient knowledge of Ireland, the ancient knowledge of the Druids, and this in, 
in our language right now is called unfishoigri in Gaelic and unfish in Gaelic is na- is language and they taught me language transfer in the Gaelic language. They taught me about the importance of trees. They taught me about the ability of trees to speak and how to listen and how to meditate into the forest. And they told, taught me all kinds of medicines and cures and methods of withstanding, of withstanding the future world because they said I would be a child, I would be an orphan going into, they called it the new world. And I would have to speak for them and that I would be their last child and that there would be no more children after me. And I would have to be the voice for the ancient Gaelic world. And I went to university and I studied and as you know, blah, blah, blah. I did all kinds of things. And as I get, as I got older, this gift they gave to me became bigger and bigger. And the things that were told me, uh, were told to me, I saw they were extraordinary. I, I was given an extraordinary gift. And indeed, I know now I am the last child of these people, and I am the last Geltacht child of that ancient world. So now, let me go back on this one. The forests are communities that have an extraordinary genome. They have extraordinary epigenetics, just like we do. They have an immune system and a biochemical pathway system filled with serotonin, similar to us. Serotonin links neural pathways. They have this. We have our brain on the top of our head. They have a cambial layer. And can we think about a cambial layer as being expanded as a form of brain? But the brain for the tree is a chemical manufacturing system. And it is the chemistry, the manufacture of chemistry within the tree, which is the wonder of the world. And it is that chemistry that gives us 40% of all of our medicines. 40% of the medicines that I would bet any one of you could open up your, your, the cabinet in your bathroom open it out and look at one pill that I'm darn sure that you have been taking or someone in the family has taken is an aspirin. Aspirin is an example. That has come from a tree. So in the process of all of this, it is like a chemical transmutation of, of material that the tree has produced over the centuries and the millennia, which has become so important. And the tree is able to do something now in this modern world that we really know very, very little about. We don't even know how a tree transports water from the soil, pulling up the aquifers into the great volumes in the tree and into the sky. And that the aerosols that the tree produces are, have got legs, like hydroxyl groups on them. They're like a dog. Let's pretend you have a dog with not four legs, but maybe many, many legs, many, many tails. And it attaches itself to the moisture vapor above the, the, the trees, and you get cloud seeding. And the trees are responsible for cloud seeding. They're responsible for our weather patterns. And they're responsible in the weather patterns. They're responsible, really, in the end, for our civilizations. Because if we have no moisture, we have no water to drink, we have no water to drink, we cannot survive. But the tree is awfully clever. The tree does one more thing. And I will talk about the wonderful redwoods on the west coast of, of California 
they do something really quite extraordinary up on the upper canopies. What they do is they produce these these aerosols up there to pull in uh, water vapor so that fertilization can take place, so that the sperm swims along this little tiny sheath of water and fertilizes the ovum. And it is up in that moist canopy up on those trees that fertilization takes place. I mean, it is a wonder of our world. I could go on and on and on. The trees have, have they're mean and lean. They have a, a low nutrient level. And they drain sustainably into the waters of, of the world, into the lakes and the valleys, and in down into the streams and into the deltas of the world. And they put a lean, mean amount of nitrogen, which is perfectly balanced for the ocean. If if too much nitrogen goes down from farming, then you get all of these algae that grow and you get toxic tides. And the toxic tides then grow and grow until the nitrogen is burnt up. And then the bacteria come in and then they require oxygen. And so all of the oxygen is gone in some of the water areas. And these are the graveyards of the sea. But the trees and the great forests of the world will stop this. And that's why everything in the world... It is functioning like a unit. It is functioning like an almost an extraordinary unit to keep it all together. And so far, you know, so far we seem to be alone. Nobody has kind of contacted Jill Tarter on the SETI project to say, hey, boys, I'm out in Mars. We've got another world out here. We are alone. We are unique. We are the song of the universe. We really are the miracle of the universe in our mathematics. The tree has this form of mathematics. So intelligence, ah, intelligence, yes, because if you damage one tree of the same family, the other tree next to it produces a phenol to help itself cure and heal and mend. Hmm. Could you expand further, please, on tree aerosols, their purpose? for the trees and life in the forest what what actually is a tree aerosol and also ah. speak about the medicinal properties beyond uh, mm-hmm. white willow bark uh, yeah. the, how the tree is essential for our lives and then juxtaposition that with going to Borneo where they're destroying all the trees I know, uh, I know. if you fly you start to see it three hours out of the Philippines you yeah. see enormous plumes of dark uh, clouds, and that's they're burning the trees. You go down to South America, uh, yeah. all over Brazil, they're burning the trees. The Chinese yeah. have uh, contracted for soybeans, genetically yeah. engineered soybeans. American companies have done the same. They're burning yeah. the trees. When you ask yeah. the average person, the business people don't care. The governor of the state doesn't care. The politicians yeah. don't care. The people in the media don't care. Nobody seems to care about the trees anymore. Ah, but Gary, ah, no, I think what is happening here is there is a dull roar coming from the human herd. We are listening to something that is quite extraordinary, and ordinary people are starting to listen to something that they haven't listened to before, and the politicians are a little deaf to this, and the people in my country and in your country and across the world are a little deaf. And let me say that I think they might all be in for a bit of a surprise somewhat in the near future. But let me go to the aerosols. The 
the tree functions by means of many, many mouths on many, many leaves called stomata. And the stomata is just a mouse like your mouse and my mouse. And it functions by means of it has got two large cells on the side called guard cells. And indeed, they do guard the mouse of the, of the tree out of the leaf. And they open and they close. And when they open and they close, as the process of, of photosynthesis and, and, and growing and being tough um, keeps going on for the tree, they produce these aerosols. And the aerosol compounds are actually very, very important. And as you go farther north, some of these aerosols, they, they actually scrub the atmosphere, scrub the atmosphere and make it aseptic. Because, you know, have you ever thought that you're, you're breathing in all this dirty air, more or less? Um, and we don't get lung infections. Most of us are fairly good. So the trees actually function by doing that. And one of the chemicals that they, that they produce is called pinene, alpha and beta pinene. Well, now, alpha and beta pinene, actually, many of these, there's thousands and thousands of chemicals that the trees produce. And if you, I'll go back to the pinene in a second. If you go out into the forests and onto a mountainous area on a warmish day, that's a tiny bit humid. And I know all of you have seen this, and you see, see a slight haze in the air, and you see a haze over the forest, and, you know, people will kind of remark on it, say, oh, it's kind of a hazy day today. That is the day that trees are producing vast quantities of aerosols, and you're actually seeing the aerosols in their tonnage being put into the atmosphere and cleaning the atmosphere, and their chemicals like pinene. And pinene is in from the pine forests, and, and America has got the most extraordinary pine forests in the world. Many, many pines, types of pines. You have huge, we have, all of us have huge biodiversity of pines. But the pines are smart. They're smart. They produce pinene, alpha pinene, and beta pinene. And if you have got a child or if you've got a teenager that has got a learning disorder, and you bring your child into a pine forest. Now, you have to do it on a warmish day when it's a little bit kind of muggy-ish um, and you, you, nice fresh air, and you bring the child in or your teenager. Actually, if it's a teenager, you probably have to drag him by the ear into the forest. The pining is being evolved from as an aerosol from the mouths, the stomata of the leaves, and the child will breathe it in. And the actual breathing of this pinene has a slightly narcotic effect on the brain. And it is a stimulant for the brain. And in fact, it looks after and it, it acts as like a carburetor for the brain. And the child comes out of the forest breathing a whole lot better, clearing its lungs, opening out its lungs, but with a higher IQ and a better ability to be able to pay attention to something. So, I mean, this is very good for teenagers. But there is another aspect to the forest that I think for those people who live in cities, now I am speaking to, to all of you out of Boston, and Boston, where I am, oh, they have got wonderful, wonderful trees here. But there are many, many areas in, the, in North America that have extraordinary urban forests, and we have to protect and build and strengthen our urban forests. Our urban forests are even... Well, they're as important as the great forests of the world, but the urban forests do something really quite extraordinary. 
And what they do is on the surface of the leaves, they have hairs called trichomal hairs. And we've got a deadly killer amongst us right now, and it is there for all of us. And it is, it is called particulate pollution. And that is pollution of less than 2.5 microns. It's tiny. Now, let me give you the scale of this. All of the pollens are out in the air right now. It's about a tenth of a pollen grain. So it's very tiny, and it's produced by traffic, by cars and buses and, and planes and just general traffic. But it's a killer. That goes into the lungs. It goes into the deep areas of the lungs, and it's very hard to get out of the lungs. But what the tree does is by the trichomal hairs. These are the hairy surfaces on leaves. And not all trees have them, but most trees have them. It combs the air. It combs the air of this particulate pollution. Now, let me tell you a tiny bit more about the particulate pollution. It also, that pollution also carries things called hitchhikers. And the hitchhikers are the pesticides that are being put on fields. And they are the things like... Um, the, the herbicides that are being sprayed, it will hitchhike on one of these pest, on one of these particular pollution materials. Large, large materials like cobalt or lead or magnesium uh, metals, and they're very dangerous for asthmatic people. And that's why asthma is up about 30% worldwide. So under a tree, what happens is the trees comb the air of this pollution. It gets on the leaves and the rain washes it down into the soil. And in the ground, we have things called mycorrhiza. And the mycorrhiza are sitting there with their lunch bags, waiting for this, this material come, to come down into the ground, and they eat it. And they use it for their daily lives. And if you sit under a, um, an urban tree, you have 25% less pollution. This is very important for people who have heart conditions, very important for people who have asthmatic problems, really important for our babies and our dogs and our cats, not to forget. Okay. Now, I'm a big believer that you can commune with nature. I spend a lot of time alone because yeah. of all the work I do and yeah. all the energy work I do and all the healing work I do and have my whole life, I was born with a gift. Of all yeah. the 20 relatives I had in my extended family, my mother had the gift of being a sensitive. That's kind of like a psychic, clairvoyant, medium, and healer all in one. Yeah. I, yeah. I was given this gift. I didn't want it. I was afraid of it. It scared me. I uh -huh. didn't know how to use it. But now, and, and since I was about 18, 17, I have. Yeah. But once I've given that much energy out, and sometimes it's 20 hours a day, seven days uh -huh. a week, I have to go and rebalance myself. And I seek nature. I've always lived on a farm. I've always been yeah. around trees and woods. And, and that's, how I, uh, that's how I pull myself back together again. Yeah. And yeah. I know intuitively the yeah. communication that I have with nature. Now, some people will say, oh, that's stupid. There's no science. Well, I'm a scientist. I'm a Ph.D. in both human nutrition and public health science. I'm a research faculty in supply biology. I'm a professor at Fairleigh Dickinson. And, and the, in fact, I got to teach a 10-week course this, uh, this summer. Uh, so it's not that I'm 
an existentialist in this. Yeah. It's, it's I'm a pragmatist. I know that there's a communication. I don't care if you have a degree or don't have a degree. Yeah. In fact, no Native American, no, no Aboriginal had a degree. They didn't have any science, but they had knowledge. They had innate yeah. wisdom yeah. about the healing nature uh, that occurs when you're around trees. And yet our urban dwellers dismiss all this as just nonsense. The scientific community has been uh, um, mawkish on it. And yeah. so we don't benefit from it. And that's why you yeah. see so many sterile urban landscapes. I yeah. believe the trees have a way of communicating with each other. I believe that yeah. sounds are important. I believe that the birds communicate and yeah. the rhythm of the birds communicate with trees in ways that make a difference. Could you talk about the nature of communication between animals, species, humans, and trees, and between trees and other trees. I would love to. And can I say to you that your mom must have been a remarkable woman, and I would have loved to have sit down and had a good big Irish cup of tea with her. We would have spent a whole evening together. <laughs> communication is, is, is not everybody's bag. There are people who can actually hear these things, and there are others who have to be trained. Some, it comes naturally. And indeed, I think the whole global community needs to do the hearing that you, you have and the stillness in your spirit that you get in your, in, your, in your farm after your hard day's work, Gary. Let me talk to three things. The human body is composed of the spirit and the mind and the soul. And for us to have productive lives, we have to have all of them functioning very well. All communities, all peoples everywhere have thought really that. But there is one other thing that we have. We have the ability to listen to the trees and to hear the forests, and not everybody can do that. And the only way now I can describe this phenomenon is some people, when they go to concerts and hear symphonies, and hear music when it is in its mathematical perfection, because really music is mathematics, transcribed into what you don't hear. It's between the musical notes is what you don't hear is what makes the pattern in mathematics that's so important. And they experience a rush of feeling that comes into their chest. It's almost a choking. And in the old Gaelic world, that is called untucked. There is no other English expression for it. It is a pulling together of your chest where you're emotional and you almost want to cry and it pulls you all into yourself. And that in Gaelic is untucked. Now for some people walking in the forest, it is the feeling of going into a, into a cathedral. And indeed, an ancient forest is the cathedral of nature. And you feel untucked. And I think most of the children of the world, when they're very little, will go into the forest and feel untucked. And untucked for them means that the trees are their friends and they indeed can talk to the trees. But the trees are the largest, most extraordinarily big, enormous species that are living. Make no mistake about it. They are living on this earth. They are alive. They have DNA. They are functioning. They are functioning like you're functioning and I'm functioning. When you have a very large object, let's call it 
maybe an elephant, let's call it a volcano in Iceland right now, and or maybe call it a tree. The tree produces a form of sound called infrasound, and that infrasound is between 1 hertz and 400 hertz. It's just been proven recently that elephants can actually send their sounds out by means of the 400 hertz ratio of noise from one elephant to another in warning, and the trees do the same thing. These low-level rumblings, and really that's what you call them, are can be measured in physics, are measured, can be extracted from now all of our sound experiments. But you and I and the human family is created like a viola. We, we have our, our ribs, we have our chest, which is empty, in which there are um, a pair of lungs. But think about it, we're a receptor machine. And so we can receive these sounds. Now, some people can receive them better than others, but children can definitely receive these sounds. And these infrasounds, it's called silent sounds. Now, dogs can hear it, birds can hear it, and I, I understand that monkeys can hear it also, can hear this low-level sound. So in some ways, some people are deaf to this sound, but you can actually attune yourself, just like you do going back into your farm after a heavy day's work. What you're doing is you're aligning yourself into unity, a form of all is one, all is unity, and that's what you're doing in a form of meditation, and then you can hear that sound. You have to listen, and it will come to you. You don't go to it, it comes to you, and it is there in the trees, and this is how come the birds can actually locate their, 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 their own trees for feeding, for perching, and for pruning, for, for tuning up their bodies to the sun, and this infrasound is really just at the very edge of coming into the radar of science because it, it means that the physicists have to work with the biologists and the biologists have to work with the biochemists. And there are not too many teams like that in all of the world. But there are a few people holding professorships of, of physics who actually do know about this. Hmm. As an organic farmer... I'm very uh, aware of the significance of trees, not just what I plant, but also the trees around the garden. And uh, even the soil, when a cypress tree dies, and uh, I take the soil after two years, it's the richest topsoil I've ever found. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have to get something out of the bottom of a lake bed to, to equal that. Yeah. Now, so I'd like two questions answered from you, please. Okay. I'm sure many listeners are starting to grow their own gardens in, yes. in some level. What would you recommend for certain trees that can be planted to benefit the growth of their gardens? And second, if you drive through much of the farmland in the United States, especially in the Midwest, we see that every inch of land is being utilized by the larger farmers and factory farms who are growing produce and crops. In the earlier past, the use of hedgerows was known to benefit the life and health of a farm, but large farms don't allow hedgerows. So explain to us what, what a hedgerow is and how they're used in the earlier past and how they could benefit us. Can I, can I answer the hedgerow first, the hedgerow question first? Yes. When you have a hedgerow, 
you have biodiversity in the hedgerow and it's a chain link fence of the forest around the field and what you have to have for your crop and I don't care what crop it is that you're growing you have to have the biodiversity in that fence and in that fence what happens is the biodiversity of insects I'm talking about for predation and also for pollination it has been proven that when you have your your hedgerow you get a 35 percent increase in your crop because of pollination and when you're talking i call these industrial farms and i don't really care if they're organic or not organic in the industrial farms what happens is you have oceanic fields and all of our beneficial insects require one very essential amino acid called lysine and the mother insect the mother the queen bee or the queen wasp bee or whatever they require lysine for egg laying and they have to have that as a fertility factor for the beneficial insect without that they are not able to produce huge crowds of brood that they need to do all the massive of pollination one stamen by another stamen by another stamen and if those hedgerows are not there and if you have oceanic fields you cannot produce lysine in the early flowering of the hedgerows the early flowers that are the biodiversity of the hedgerows will not produce lysine therefore the bees cannot survive therefore you do not have pollination and some of the bees are dying and they're just dropping dead on their feet because they do not have sufficient food and you cannot expect birds to do predation when you have oceanic fields and the birds are our first line of predation running up and down the crops getting all of the deleterious insects on the crop and really protecting the crops what do you expect if you attend the holy church of the holy dollar and put in everything but everything into your fields and forget nature and even if you're an organic farmer here you will you will end up by destroying the planet now let me backtrack on this one the price of food is too cheap the farmers are on their knees please ask them to put in smaller fields and have setaways so that they can have areas where the, all of the native pollinators can live and grow they are equal to you they're as good as you are a bee is as good as i am so we have to hold hands with all these concepts of nature and and allow the farmers to survive and these industrial farms well there's something else again i mean i can go on and on about them the industrial farms are really destroying the oceans by backtracking all of the nitrogen into the oceans so what you can do as a consumer you've got a voting power in your purse you go out with your purse and if and when you can you buy organic but you try to buy organic from small farmers from local farmers and keep them off their knees and try to buy good quality food for you and for your growing babies now we'll go back to the first question of of what you had asked me what would be beneficial for for if you had a little wee garden okay we're we're talking city gardens or we're talking country gardens here any member of the rosaceae family gary anything that would would be a pear would be an apple would be a fruiting tree would be um then you're going up into the amelian chairs the surface berry service berries all of those uh, 
particular groups of of um, flowering um, fruiting trees are very very good for because the flower itself is a parabola and if you look into it's a, it's a five petal flower of the rose um, the 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 uh, flying insect a wasp a bee a butterfly whatever can fly into it and rotate when when the insect can rotate then it feeds and when it feeds it gets enough nectar and when it gets enough nectar it keeps these beneficial insect for pollination and so you have a win-win situation in a little city garden or in a country garden and they're very very good to have around good final question before we go to our phones I would like you to address this issue after all your many many years observing and studying and researching trees and forests not just as a scientist but as a spiritual quest to discover their hidden meanings what has this imparted upon you most and if you had to speak to a room of urban dwellers completely removed from the life of the forest what would be the wisdom you would most want to impart to them I would say to them that the tree is the king of the forest. The forests evolved to be the pinnacle of the green world with the chloroplastic structure. And we have evolved to be the pinnacle, I think, of the animal world. And we have evolved um, our, 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 our red blood cells which contain hemoglobin. The hemoglobin of, that makes us tick over is almost identical to the chloroplastic structure, to the chlorophyll that makes the tree tick over. We have to hold hand to hand. The air that's produced by the trees, the oxygen produced by the trees, gives us the kiss of life. And we have to look to the trees and thank them like the ancients did in the long way past. Because if we don't do that, when the last tree goes, like it did on Easter Island, we too will be dead. No question, scientifically, spiritually, or otherwise about that. Hmm. Very interesting insight. My guest, if you've just tuned in, most of you have been on for the entire hour, is Diana Birchford Kroger from a very interesting background. She's Irish, she's Canadian, and she's a combination of many other spiritual beliefs. She's a hardline scientist, but a natural mystic. She combines a lot of different qualities. Now, let's see who we have up uh, for my guest. We've held about 11 minutes back, so I think that the topic has been well explored. And the, the, uh, the book, if you're interested in her uh, website, uh, the book is called... Uh, the Global Forest. And, Diana, do you have a website? Well, the website is under Stuart Bernstein, my agent in, in, uh, in New York, who is the most wonderful agent in the world, and he has got all kinds of goodies on that uh, uh, YouTube thing and all kinds of things on his website. And um, he would be delighted to give a hand for anybody. Okay, thank you. Let's say hello to William from California. Hi, William. Hi. Hello, William. Well, listen, hi. You, you sound like the closest thing we have to Mother Nature in human form. <laughs> well, I, 
Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I have a, I, I'm developing this garden and yes, uh, yes. decided to go to this raised bed. It's about uh, 11 inches high, 4 by 8, and I'm trying to get the, a percentage of, of soil to fill it in. So, so far, I, 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 ha- I have things to mix like sand, peat moss, and, and I have a, a fair amount of compost. Is there, yeah. what's, what's your opinion on a good percentage of what and what? Okay. Okay. Do you have any, any source of horse manure, too? I mean, um, I know in- I, 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 I could find it. I have a yeah. neighbor that has uh, goats. And yeah. a pig and goat. No, 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 not pig manure. Goat manure will be fine. Um, okay. Uh, I would go a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, okay, for everything. Oh, okay. By ratio, uh, by way of soil, compost, horse manure. And then into that, I would put some dolomitic limestone because you've got a quite a, a high pH or, or a low pH, I mean, over there in California. So you've got to pull it up into, into the... H7, approximately six, 6.5 to 7 for going, growing good vegetables. Now, there's okay. another thing that you can actually do, too, to that bed. And take your soup bones and wash off the soup bones and, and bury them deeply under that bed. And that gives you a phosphate source. And you can also use um, steamed bone meal and use only the steamed bone meal from North America. And because of Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease, you do not want it from a source from Europe. You want the American form of that steamed bone meal. And so you add about a yogurt cup per 100 square yards. And that will give you a very, very good quality soil for planting any kind of a garden. And the the bone meal will last as a fertilizer for about five years. So you can lollygag it. And for California, I would mulch the surface of the soil with, you know, maybe rotten hay if you can get hold of it or some straw if you can get hold of that. And if you can't get hold of any of those, then some grass clippings. Have you heard of something called rock dust? Yes, that's good. It's hard to find out here, but I guess you can go to a rock quarry or something. Yeah, that's Uh, that's very good. Yeah, and what happens is that the rock dust is actually very good because um, it it just slowly etches away. You know, the effect of weathering and the effect of growing actually gives all of the other micro elements into into the garden that you really require. Um, You know, uh, trees and, and things grow much better in gravel quarries, and that's really the basis of your rock dust. It just grinds away at the foot of the plant, and it's quite good, yeah. I thought that was something about minerals as well, isn't it? Yes, minerals. Yeah, it supplies the minerals. Yes. Um, I don't know uh, if if I heard your your website or, or your friend's website. Um, he is my agent in New York. He's a wonderful agent, and his name is Stuart Bernstein. B e r n s t e i n s t u a r t. Stuart Bernstein. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's the website. That's the website, and um, and of course you can also go to Penguin too. But Stuart is 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 the full scale director of all things right now because I'm kind of going global, I'm afraid. And um, um, well, I'm glad those, you, you are. Know, do you uh, know what I mean? <laughs> William, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Uh, a final thought from myself, and then I would like your final input. I believe that. We are living 
at a time of paradox in yes. this context. I need a lot of time alone because I give so much time to others. And it's hard yeah. for people to understand what it means when you need alone time. Yeah. I'm not talking about sitting alone in an apartment or watching television. A lot of people think, well, I'm alone a lot, you know. Well, yeah. yeah, but it's not constructive. It's not healing time. Yeah. And yeah. I can't be around other people when this is occurring because their energy is tapped into my energy. You need silence in your soul. Yeah, I need total silence. And a yes. lot of people are too selfish to understand that. We also have bred this entirely new young generation that abhors lone, alone time. Yeah. That would never go into nature by themselves. The rare exception may be, but the general rule yeah. is they don't mind having 300,000 people you know, in, in, uh, visiting a mall in a week. They could stand that. They actually have a they have adapted to very high decibel noise, but yeah. other people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they don't want that alone time either. They talk about it. They yeah. muse about it. But when yeah. it comes down to it, most people today never actualize on higher ideals. They still stay, stay connected to their darker uh, side of their condition being. And then when they do go to, I see it all the time upstate, to one of the yeah. retreats, oh, we had a great time. We were commuting with nature. Mm. No, you weren't. You know, where yeah. you, you were 300 people gathered around, you know, giving hugs around a tree. Yeah. That's yeah. not commuting with nature, and that's not respecting the tree. Why don't you go in someplace alone, by yourself, without any creature company, without a cell phone, and just be? Yeah. I, I go out into the big, uh, the big valley of Montana. Uh, each year wow. for two weeks, all I have yeah. is water, nothing yeah. else. I commune yeah. with nature. I surrender all of the questions of life. I come back revitalized, ready to go yeah. back to work. Yeah. I don't see people doing this. I see people only doing things in groups or together. And then there's this nonstop chatter. People just can't mm -hmm. shut up. They just yeah. can't keep their minds quiet, let alone their lips from moving. Yeah. And you just want to take some Gorilla Glue and put it between their lips and say, <laughs> shut up, right? <laughs> and do you understand what I'm saying? I, I, Your thoughts. Can I say 100%? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. You're very bad, really. You're very bad. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I, but I really understand exactly what you're saying. It's silence in your soul. It has to be there. And, you know, I think it will come. I think that the times are changing, and I think the times are going into a cycle where they're going to have to listen to silence, and they're going to have to take sympathy from themselves. They're going to have to look at themselves, and they're going to have to know who who they are in their heart and come out of there a better person. The search that has meaning is the search that comes from love, not the search that comes from fear. Oh, yes. And yes. all the time I see people trying to commune with one another or nature where fear is the progenitor. It is what is motivating them instead of the openness of being there with no ego and no pretense and yeah. simply being mindful that they're in a presence of a great spiritual and healing environment. Yeah. They have to put their ego on an altar 
and put it away from them and not touch it and to just become unity with, with something different. And in fact, it's very good for you. In fact, it helps your sympathetic nervous system. It paces down your heart to do that. It is very good for your circulation, and it is very good for, for any kind of mental problem, any kind of mental healing. It is a stasis for the body. It is what you, did in, what you do in Montana is what everybody should be doing. So I say to all of your listening public, I say you go out and you listen to Gary and you trot out with your bottle of water and you go out and you learn who you are. And I'm telling you now you have to do it because if you're going to be ambassadors for me and ambassadors for this program, you have to do that. Diana, we're Those are time. orders. <laughs> I, lo- I look forward to a next conversation together. Oh, it's my pleasure. All the best to you and... All the best to the message listeners who are capable, and I know in this audience they are, of connecting with it. Diana Bershford Kroger, K-R-O-E-G-E-R, my guest. And I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening.